COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms and organisations that innovate, inspire and encourage small sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. Welcome to Climate Conversations. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lucy Stanfield-Jenner, who's Chair of 2050 Climate Group and the Circular Economy Specialist at the University of Edinburgh. Lucy, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, we always kind of kick off with just a little, I guess, career today and journey today as well. So um, if it's okay by you, would you mind giving the audience just a little flavour of your, your role and some of your previous roles and your, your interest in this space as well? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Um, always a pleasure. So, yeah, I work for the University of Edinburgh um, in circular economy. So my role is to work with our academics um, and with industry to make cool things happen in the circular economy space. That's kind of how I describe it in a nutshell. I'm also chair of 2050 Climate Group, which is Scotland's leading um, youth charity, which we support um, and empower young people to take action on climate change and become climate leaders, um, however they however they want to do that. Um, in terms of my own background, I am interested in kind of doing whatever I can to um, mitigate and adapt to climate change. So that includes things like circular economy with my job, but also with research. So I'm very interested in how we can use land um, to tackle climate change, particularly in Scotland. Um, I'll actually be starting a PhD in September on, on that kind of topic, um, thinking about how we can get that kind of community angle in as well and, and make sure that um, we are using our land and, and changing our land to, to best suit environment and society. Um, so a, a real kind of wide range of, of interest, a, a jack of all trades and certainly a master of none. Yeah, no, I think that's important as well, though, in the, the climate piece, because there are so many different areas and skills required on this journey as well. So I think it is important to have that broad, kind of broad sweep of set of skills as well, because I think, you know, often we talk about meta skills and stuff like that as well and i think green skills you know will very much become a core skill set for the the working population of today and obviously indeed the future generation um on the your, your work at 2050 group as well i mean i think one of the things we saw and before kind of coming to the kind of reflections on cop um is the kind of the kind of active nature of young people during and um, this kind of last sort of maybe five to six years as well and I think one of the things that's really powerful about 2050 group is you know young people in the workforce and how they influence it and if you saw that influence begin to affect organizations as well through the work that the young leaders are doing as well and um, is that something that you've start saw in the last couple of years really kind of move the goalposts if you like yeah I think there's a couple of different um points in there so one is that yeah young people are certainly leading the way i would say in terms of activism on on climate change not exclusively but it tends to it tends to be younger people who are really pushing forwards for more ambitious change and i think that's really good you know we, we need that to kind of keep us keep us on our toes um but then they're also demanding more of their employers and it's all linked into what we've seen throughout the pandemic where people are starting to think about what do they want from their jobs what do they want from their employers what kind of place do they want to work for and it's no longer good enough to offer good pay and good benefits. Young people want to know what the environmental credentials of their employer and how can they start to bring some environmental considerations into their workplace. So we have people in 2050 Climate Group who are lawyers, who are doctors, who are accountants, kind of working in nothing to do with climate change, but yet are establishing at their workplaces, environmental sustainability plans, 
kind of getting that into the boardroom level to make sure that their employer is, is taking action on this stuff. And so I think it's that's quite a powerful model. You know, um, we call them our, our sleeper agents, um, kind of these people who are really passionate about climate change um, in, in all varieties of their life and kind of pushing for change wherever they find themselves. Yeah, I think, I think there's something powerful in that as well, Lucy, that, you know, listen, organisations, you know, can only often respond to, to what they, they can get told in the workplace and also, you know, hearing it anecdotally as well. But I think it's powerful that collaboration with colleagues as well, you know, colleagues who perhaps maybe haven't considered this or perhaps don't know enough about it as well. And it is, I think it is a really kind of important initiative as a whole. And, you know, I suspect we'll talk about it a bit more later on. But, um we talk, I touched just there upon COP, and obviously, you know, being based up here, Lucy, I know you were you know, at COP, you know, quite a number of different times, you know, including an event we had ourselves. And, you know, as you probably heard from previous episodes on the show, I suppose the, the kind of the perspective on COP has been a bit of a mixed bag in the sense that, you know, some people, you know, kind of looking on the positives and the kind of atmosphere in Glasgow and stuff, which, which is great. And I think there was a, a good buzz as well, you know, but obviously, you know, Professor Helm as well, and I think you know, rightly so, um, had, had sort of called out a lot of the, the issues. And it, our cops beginning just to become a bit of a talking shop, last chance saloon, you know, will COP27 just be the kind of same? So I don't know any kind of takeaways and reflections from yourself on that, Lucy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting question. I, at COP, felt really excited. I, there was so much energy and, and, you know, you will have experienced yourself being there it felt like a really positive place to be in. It was quite strange to see people on the outside of COP um, criticizing it when actually being there felt really exciting, really energizing, like there was lots of positive stuff going on. And I think that was great. And I think that is important, especially after the two years that we'd had in the run up to that, it felt like kind of a relentless barrage of bad news from all fronts. And so I think it was really important for people to get together and feel that energy. In terms of the actual outcome of it, yeah, yeah, it's it's not good enough. It's never going to be enough. You know, we should have decarbonized 20 years ago um, when these things were first going. And so um, I, I don't think it was any more or less than what I expected. And I think perhaps the error with COP26 and with all COPs has been the hype that gets built up around them as this is going to be our one chance to save the world, because that is not has never been true. There is not a single one thing that's going to stop climate change, that's going to, you know, quote unquote, save the world. It's never going to be one point in time, it's going to be a series of compounding actions. And so I think that's been the mistake is to kind of place all of that on COP26. You know, I think they're the best thing that we've got for this international diplomacy that's required to take to get 197 countries to fundamentally change their economies. It's if we didn't have COP, we would invent COP. Um, but, you know, I was listening to, um, to Dieter's comments on, on your episode a few weeks ago and yeah, he, he is right. There's been so many of them now that, you know, 26 coming up to 27, that actually, if you were doing something at work, if you're doing a project for 26 years that hadn't fulfilled its aim, you would probably stop it or you would at least evaluate it. So I do think we need to kind of take a, take a step back and think about what is going wrong there. But I, I, I wouldn't fall so down, down so hard on the kind of criticism of it, because I think, as I said, it's it's the best that we've got and it's not the only chance that we've got to kind of take action on on climate change and action on climate change takes place every single day every single minute um not just a couple of weeks in november each year yeah no i, I think it's always this as well the answer is somewhere probably in the middle in the sense that you know it's not like it caught each year and stuff like that won't be the last chance so nor will it necessarily be you know an abject sort of failure if you like but 
I suppose there is something, and you touched upon it there about the the countries getting getting together around the table as well. I suppose one of the things that you know myself and possibly others have felt was during COP twenty six. Unfortunately, there was a few sort of leading nations for kind of obvious reasons that didn't quite come to the table. Um, now, obviously, the work that's going on in Scotland and you know some of the Scandi countries and indeed you know in Central and Eastern European countries that have possibly advanced at a, a faster pace than others, if you like. Is there sometimes a frustration, do you think, in the climate world that some of the smaller countries, you know, maybe there is a chance we meet net zero by 2045, 2050, but others are going to be 30, 40, 50 years behind? And and does it almost kind of not, do you feel it can be a bit kind of draining just feeling that, you know, okay, Scotland or Sweden or Denmark might make our targets, but then China, India, Russia are going to be miles behind um, and ultimately this is a journey we all need to get on so is there sometimes I guess a, a frustration in the world that okay some are moving at pace but some are moving at a snail's pace <laughs> yeah yeah there is um but again the, the fundamental thing that we need to remember at climate change is that what when it comes down to it what matters is the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere and so any single impact that we can have on slowing that rise because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about decreasing, we're talking about slowing the rise, is is good. And so Scotland, the UK, other smaller countries, that's still carbon that we're saving from being put in the atmosphere. That still buys us time. So I think it's wrong to look at it in the terms of like, oh, well, we're going to only make a tiny impact because these bigger countries are, are, are still going to pollute. You know, um, China isn't going to even have peak coal until 2030. So, you know, it, it, it is when you think about it like that, you're like, oh, it's, it's really frustrating. But it also sends a signal. So we are an advanced nation, we are developed, we've, we've kind of done our polluting and we have that responsibility now to lead the way to this new future. And then I guess the final point on it is that decarbonizing our economy will make our economy and make our society so much better in so many other ways. It will reduce the pollution in our streets, it will make our landscapes less barren and more biodiverse and nicer places to be. We'll have new jobs, a whole bunch of other um, improvements other than just the decarbonisation angle. So I think, you know, that there's multiple motivations to, to do it anyway, regardless of what other countries do and and to show that pathway. And I, as I said, I think we I think it comes down to we did it first. We, we carbonised first. So we have to decarbonise first. Yeah, no, I think that there's a powerful message in that as well to say that, you know, I'm not saying sort of by any means kind of give up as well and in the actual fact as you say this is probably a chance to be a kind of leader in this as well so i think there is definitely something powerful there as well and um, you touched upon there about you know what a new potential economy or economic and societal way of life may look like and you know on previous episodes you know we've touched upon a whole host of different you know points on the kind of economic piece but certainly probably one area we've maybe not covered as much and you know very much in your field is around the circular model and I suppose, what does a, a circular economy moving forward look like to you as well? And you've touched upon some of the benefits there as well, but also um, in terms of your know, new jobs and ways of life as well, and your know, less you know, packaging and, and whatnot as well. Is a, what, what, what's like a kind of a perfect circular economy um, and what it would look like to you, Lucy, if that makes sense? Yeah, so a, a circular economy, simply put, is, is a, an economy in which or a system in which everything has value and nothing is wasted. So that doesn't mean that a process wouldn't produce a, what we would consider now to be a waste product, but it means that that waste product is no longer seen as just something that's, yeah, it's wasted, it's thrown away, it's not used. 
it, there's value in that and it's reused in some other way. The natural ecosystem is a circular economy. You know, when a, a tree grows, its leaves fall, they, the nutrients from that get extracted to help other plants grow. That's, you know, a closed system. What we currently have is we take resources, we make them into something and then we throw it away. And that's incredibly harmful and it's driving a lot of the issues that we have around pollution um, environmentally and, and of our atmosphere. So that, that's kind of fundamentally what a circular economy is. And I don't think that we can truly get to a world where we have tackled climate change and the biodiversity crisis without having a circular economy. Now, you, are, you use the word a perfect circular economy and I don't yet... I, there is no example of that in the world, in, in, the, in the human world, of a perfect circular economy. There is, there's lots of leakiness and you, it's a very difficult thing to have in isolation. So let's think of a simple example. So you, let's say that you, you're a coffee shop and you make all of your customers bring a reusable cup and they fill it up each time and all of your systems are circular. But who is making those coffee cups? <laughs> what is the user doing with them eventually down the line? Are they just being thrown in a bin? So, you know, you, you start to get this leakiness. So a circle economy requires that you look across the whole supply chain to really make it happen. And that's really difficult, but there's also quite powerful because then you can start to have that influence across your whole supply chain and make that, that system-wide change, change and identify where there might be value that other people view as waste that you actually think that you can use. And then on the jobs piece, yeah, it's, you know, the jobs that I don't even when I was in school my job didn't exist so I'm, I'm one of those people you know you hear about all oh, the next generation jobs that we don't even know what they are yet and I'm one of them and I suspect you probably are as well so th there's jobs that I don't even I can't even name that will be around in the circle economy but there's also really basic ones so repairing fixing things sorting out um waste into what's recyclable what's reusable um what needs to go into a different stream these are all like really practical things that we can that we need to do with circular economy and what excites me about them is because they're, they're very um, accessible jobs you don't need to have multiple degrees to go and get them and, and, and I think that's kind of exciting when we talk about reskilling and upskilling and a just transition I think a circular economy is, is really key to that and some of the opportunities it offers are really key to that. Yeah no I, I think so as well and there's and, and you know it's funny you know looking back maybe 70 80 years ago when my you know grandparents were young as well actually you could argue that that we've had circular economies in the past you know because like you know a lot of them would reuse clothes or, or, or um, you know, shoes or, or you know whatever else you know there was a very you know there wasn't this same sort of I guess consumerism society whereby you know you get something for a few pounds and you can, you know, chuck it away sort of thing. So I think that, that we can, you know, society has shown we can live like that. There's actually precedent for that as well. And I think that's always important. And I think what you mentioned there is really important as well is that sometimes, you know, climate change to the, the kind of average person can sound a bit scary. You know, they may think, you know, jobs are going to go possibly in the same way they think when they hear the word digital transformation as well. You know, where is my role in this as well? But I think as you said there as well, actually, there is a role for, for everyone here as well. And I think that there's something kind of powerful in that. Um, I mean, I think in Scotland, you know, touching upon your know, Scotland's journey on the circular economy piece, I think there's some good progress to date. Um, by no means are we kind of, you know, done and dusted, but have you been kind of pleased with the progress in the last few years in Scotland in the kind of circular economy front? And I suppose where are the next steps we really need to be going? I know the deposit return scheme is sort of something that's sort of lurking in the background as well. Um, and I think, you know, the, the quicker that kind of gets accelerated, when you look at countries like Germany who have had this in place for 
years upon years. I mean, it seems that there's areas where Scotland seem to be leading the world, and then there's other areas we seem quite behind. That it seems to be a bit of a, a disconnect um, from my take. I'm just curious on your thoughts on that, Lucy. Yeah, good point, Mark. Um, Scotland is definitely ahead on circular economy. I mean, it has the only. I was actually talking to the government yesterday, and, and he was pretty confident in saying it, it, it's they have the only minister for circular economy. So in, in the world, so you know that's that's a sign that it is taking circular economy seriously. We saw circular economy being mentioned in the in the government's new economic transformation plan um, as kind of fundamental to to how it sees um, economic opportunities in the next decade or, and going forwards. So I think Scottish government does take the circular economy seriously, certainly more seriously than other governments do. But I think I would want to see a lot more translation of that into real. Um, changes. So the deposit return scheme is coming and that's that's really good and it's almost a proof of concept. So, you know, as you were saying, some of these ideas in the circular economy are not new and it's the reason we've kind of strayed so far into a linear economy is because we don't value the resources that we have. And so we have a very kind of um, extractive and consumption-based economy where we don't, things aren't valued properly. Um, but going back, uh, you know, not that long ago, we did value them, so so we so we use them again. And so I think it's I think it's not a, a huge kind of stretch of the imagination to imagine getting there again. And things like the deposit return scheme, where people will hopefully start to see that their bottle isn't just something that can be thrown away once you've had the valuable thing inside of it. It's actually got value in and of itself. And so I think it's that kind of mental switch into to seeing the, the the value in the resources that you're using. So as I said, the deposit return scheme is. Um, a good proof of concept and, and I'm looking forward to it being rolled out but I think there's a lot more that we can do and even just um, it, some really fundamental things around the recycling rates I think we have a 45% recycling rate in Scotland we can do a lot better than that you know so I think it's um, we need to we need to start with some of the fundamentals I think it's quite easy with the circular economy to get distracted by how shiny and exciting it sounds but actually when you break it down into what it really is there's still a lot of kind of uh, small improvements that we can make on, on the journey. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's great about, you know, the, the circular economy minister and, you know, I think the Scottish government was also the first uh, government in the world to declare a climate emergency, actually. Um, <clears throat> but as always, the, you know, working in the, the world of policy, you know, generally you're, you're judged on what the results are, you know, in terms of translation from the kind of lofty rhetoric into actual tangible policy outcomes and improvements and, and so on and so forth. On the on the circular economy piece, and I suppose in some ways a deposit return, I mean, this may not be necessarily related, but one of the things we've spoke about before, um, again, on various episodes is around carbon pricing and carbon border tax. Now, in some ways, you know, someone may, there may be an argument here that if you don't see that bottle being recycled and you do you know toss it then actually you know you should be paying that price on it that that carbon pricing should be factored into products and goods and and so on and so forth as well and and obviously as well with the kind of you know energy crisis as well importations potentially of oil as well i wonder i mean how do we get to a point where it is accurately placed in products and goods as well i mean do you do you think that's something we do need to start be a bit more mindful of and actually actively consider yeah 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 mark i mean it's it's a really difficult one so i absolutely agree um with the idea of a, a, a carbon border price and i think we need to start thinking about that in terms of um, not just carbon but in terms of like a materials border price but the, the fact is that it, it to truly 
value all of the resources that go into something that we consume and i don't just mean the actual thing that we consume or the packaging i mean let's say it's um a, a pint of milk it's all of the feed that's gone into those animals it's all of the fuel that's gone into transport you know that um, to, to fuel the vehicles that have transported it so it's it's the whole value chain um that needs to be appropriately priced that will put prices up for consumers and that's what we need to in my opinion avoid because we can't we need to bring everybody with us and not everyone can afford to pay the true price for something um and it's there's no there's no point in trying to change that that is just a fact <laughs> not everyone will be able to and so we need to think about um extended producer responsibility so that's where in the circular economy if i produce a pint of milk i have responsibility as the producer to make sure that the packaging that that milk is um being given in is um, disposed of or reused in a responsible way rather than putting it onto the consumer and so that's kind of a really simple example of extended producer responsibility but it can also work for the local authority having the responsibility um, and, and then ultimately kind of moving up in the levels and thinking about how to make sure that the systems allow for sustainable choices to be made rather than always putting it on the consumer to make the more expensive choice because they won't and not everyone can so I think, yeah, when it when it comes to really costing these things in, I think that's one of the ways that we have to do it uh, when it when it comes to the circular economy. No, I, I think I think you're absolutely right, Lucy. I think this is one of the things I, I go back to the you know climate change for some people being a bit scary as well because they, they you know they see things you know, if, I, if I make the more climate savvy decision to buy the you know, organic broccoli that's perhaps not had all the air miles and, and so on and so forth, you know, it's going to cost me an extra, you know, one pound fifty or two pounds, whatever. Um, and I think also, we're living in a, a world now whereby, as you know, someone who may live on the breadline, everywhere you turn, whether it's your electricity bills, whether it's your gas, whether it's your know, petrol price, everything just seems to kind of be going up as well. And as a consumer, you know, it can be you know quite scary as well. And you know, I think you know something that I spoke about with, with Dieter as well is that you know I think you know there seems to be a kind of a bit of a school of thought, unfortunately, now where people sort of say, well, you know. You know, oil's going up, you know, gas is going up, so we should just drill more oil out the North Sea, you know, and alleviate that. But in actual fact, you know, doesn't this just signify what's been a major failure in energy policy here as well? And in actual fact, you know, how do we get to a world whereby consumers aren't feeling the pressure to make these choices? And in actual fact, it's facilitated by governments and the, I suppose industry as well. Do you think that do you think there is a larger responsibility on them, or do you think it's still a balance of individuals collective behavior and choices as well yeah i mean there's, there's, a, there's a lot in there i mean just just focusing on the cost thing we we need to be i know um dita's opinions and others opinions that we aren't being honest about the cost of the net zero transition and i think i think that's true to a certain extent but i think we need to be very careful there are quite powerful voices in politics using some of the current uh, cost of living crises to push an anti-net zero agenda. And there's even talks of things like a referendum on net zero. And, you know, the, 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 there's a powerful um, arm of politics right now that is pushing very strongly against um, net zero. So I think we need to be really careful that we're not aiming, at, sorry, arming that, that, that group of people by making it seem to consumers that their lives are gonna get more expensive if we, if we follow the net zero path, because I think that would only that be shooting ourselves in the foot. In terms of consumer responsibility versus government responsibility versus business responsibility, you know, again, not to be kind of sitting on the fence, but it does fall down into the middle. So 
you know, you, people like you and I who have the means to um, make the more sustainable choices should. And it's people like you and I who are driving climate crisis by and large. 99% of emissions are caused by 1% of the world's population. So, you know, we we definitely do have personal responsibility and I wouldn't ever kind of shy away from, from making that point and from pushing for people to be environmental, environmentally responsible where they can. So things like choosing to take public transport where you can, not flying all the time, reducing your consumption of meat and dairy. That is the biggest single impact that you can have on, on the environment. Um, it doesn't matter if you've uh, kind of had tomatoes grown in a greenhouse in Scotland. Um, it, it is meat and dairy that is that is far worse. So I think there's a lot that we can do as, as, as consumers to kind of push the dial. But again, going back to the kind of small countries versus big countries, that will not be enough. Consumer change alone will not be enough. We need to have big businesses and government um, support for this. And it, it frustrates me a little bit. I, I see again this kind of agenda of pushing things onto the individual um, to make a change as an excuse for companies to go on polluting, to go on, um, you know, shell exploring new oil fields. You know, it, it can become a bit of a smokescreen. So I think that it, it's yes, we can do as much as we as as we can. But we also need to keep that pressure on larger organizations and on the government to, again, make those choices embedded into life so that if I want to get across town, it's quicker for me to get the bus or to cycle or to walk than it is to drive. It's, it's about that kind of those fundamental changes that you don't have to think about because um, the government has made it made it simpler for you to make that choice. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely this as well. And I think, you know, you know, very small things, you know, like the, the plastic bag carrier as well, you know, actually, you know, sometimes, you know, at, you know, at the end of the day, you know, regulation and policy from government does also drive consumer change. So there's a bit of a balance there in that, you know, government can help drive consumer change, but then consumers still have the responsibility to bring the bag or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I mean, it's interesting there, you know, just on the kind of industry front as well, um, I, I, there was an article came out, I think it was maybe last month, and it was talking about kind of FTSE 100 companies as well. And it was quite scary, the percent. I mean, it was genuinely, I think it was like 92, possibly even you know 93, um, in the high 90s anyway, um, of organisations like, you know, and I'm, I don't mean your average startup, your average SME here. I'm talking, you know, your FTSE 100 companies who were not meeting net zero targets as well. So... I think, you know, often at times, you know, business, there's maybe a responsibility, you know, government need to be doing more and stuff like that. But is that a bit of a concern that, you know, some of the larger players, you know, possibly aren't really behind this agenda as much as they should be? And whilst we can talk about, you know, you know, net zero being the boardroom at the top level, which it should be, you know, I guess are we in a world now where, you know, profit still seems to be, you know, king? Um, and, and again, the, the net zero agenda, is it, has it slipped somewhat since COP or uh, do, is that something you've maybe you, you've witnessed, would you say? Absolutely, profit is still king, 100%. That, that's not changed and, and I, I don't know that it ever will. I think the thing is that businesses need to understand climate as a risk as well as an opportunity. So we've, we've actually come at address, getting businesses to address climate change through a very kind of capitalist point of view, you know, talking about new opportunities, new markets, new customers, etc. And that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. So if we need to talk that language to get people to make change, then let's do it. But I think in terms of actually really getting people to getting businesses to act on this, it needs to be embedded as a risk as well. And so that means things like what's going to happen to your insurance, what's going to happen if your employers can't get in because 
they're flooded or you know or the trees landed on um the electricity line and 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 they and they can't connect so you know i think it's thinking about risk and 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 the risk that climate change poses to business profits and to business operations and that's when kind of the real the real impact will happen and um, but yeah certainly you know it's there's SMEs have a big role to play and because of the sheer kind of number of SMEs um, in Scotland in particular um, so you know that that's if, if all SMEs kind of took small steps to become um, more sustainable and to reduce their emissions that would have a big impact but again it's that kind of upwards pressure so it, how we talked about personal responsibility and then upwards pressure to government it's the same thing smaller businesses upwards pressure to larger businesses. And, and that's where, again, consumer choice comes in and, and consumer pressure comes in. It is, it is a very powerful thing. But yeah, I would say kind of going back to what I started with, I think to get business, big businesses to start to really um, embed climate action in, into their plans, they need to understand how it will impact their profits from a, from a risk perspective. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. And, and it's like anything as well, you know, with, with kind of, you know, the kind of reward comes the, the managing the risk as well, you know. So um, I think it's a fair point as well that it can, you know, yes, there's going to be new opportunities as well, you know, and that's great for business. I think you're right. We do need to kind of get on that kind of bandwagon and journey, if you like. But at the same time, I think there has to be a bit of realism as well that, that there are risks, major risks that climate change poses as well. And um, that, you know, at the end of the day, and you know, before coming to the people side, if you've not got people in a business, then you've really you've not got a business at the end of the day. So, um, and just on that front, on the kind of people front as well, you know, mentioned about you know, Scotland's a predominantly SME dominated economy as well, and you know, evidence you know across the board, certainly in kind of my sector and the kind of tech sector, you know, skills are a major issue. You know, digital skills has been for, for a number of years actually, but I think we're actually getting to a stage now where it's not just the kind of digital skills but it's also the kind of climate or green skills however you want to call it and it's funny i was having a conversation the other day and something i don't think is particularly helpful in the net zero journey is we tend to try and pigeonhole green jobs or net zero jobs when in actual fact right green skills are going to be in all aspects of work as well so why are we pigeonholing them as if there's some sort of category on their own only certain groups of people have so i guess my, my, my point my question here lucy is how do we ensure that green skills is part of everyone's day-to-day -day work and there is a constant upskill and a reskilling journey um in your kind of workforce and then at the same time you know at the end of the day there will be some jobs that are are more greener, you know, a renewables engineer, whatever it may be, than others. However, how do we get to a point where people have the kind of basic skills to understand our carbon footprint and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, it's you're totally right. You know, in the same way that when you spend money, you're either spending money to stop to tackle climate change or not. It's it's you can't be neutral in this any longer. It's the same thing with jobs. You know, you can't either your job is um, doing something to, to prevent climate change or to mitigate or to adapt to it, or it's not. And I think increasingly it's going to be, we have to get those skills across because you can't, you can no longer kind of ignore this. And so even if your job is not explicitly focused on, on tackling climate change, the decisions that you make and the actions that you take are going to have an impact. So yeah, how do we make, how do we help people to understand that? And I think it's, you know, um, when we think about the skills that we need to tackle climate change, there's some really practical ones, there's some really kind of specific, um, very clear jobs, developing renewable energy, um, you know, helping companies become more socially responsible, socially responsible and sustainable, as we've just talked about. And then there's things like 
um, having the um, being able to have the conversation perhaps with your shareholders or with your board about what climate change means. And so you start to think about what get called soft skills, but I, I don't really like that word, but we, we don't have a better one, but skills like influence, negotiation, communication, those things are really important to um, helping bring everyone on that journey to tackle climate change as well. And so those are the types of skills we need. And then in terms of um, the, the kind of broader skills agenda, I think we also need to support the teaching of uh, these types of skills in, in school. So really getting it in at that lower level, you know, I was of the generation where when I was doing my A-levels, we were having a debate about whether climate change was caused by humans or not. And that is, well, I hope that would be unimaginable now in schools, I, I think it would be. But we need to start teaching not only about climate change, but also about action that you can take on climate change at a younger level. Something that I do worry about and that I see through 2050 Climate Group is younger generations having this kind of overwhelming fear and sense that it's too late, we've missed the boat, there's nothing we can do about it. And, and going back to how we started this conversation talking about COP, I don't think the narrative around COP26 was our last chance to save the world and it failed helps with that because you can't do anything with that kind of feeling of despair. You have to have a feeling of, yeah, reality and realism and pragmatism, but also that that kind of hope. And so I, what I would like to see is an agenda of teaching about climate change and how to take action on it in schools so that people come out of school into whatever it is, whether that's university, whether that's work, feeling like they have the tools to, to take action on climate change in whatever space of work they find themselves, whether that isn't a kind of explicitly environmental career or whether that's anything else. Um, so I think I think that's that's really important. Yeah, no, absolutely, Lucy. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, from the kind of outside looking in, and it's funny, you know, again, you know, similar generation whereby, you know, climate change was something that was you know, very seldom sort of discussed as, as something, you know, in curriculum at school and even beyond that, even at university, and, you know, kind of the politics world as well. So looking back, you know, as you say, hopefully that has changed. But in some ways, I'm not entirely sure it maybe has because I think a lot of young people now, they're doing a lot of their fact-finding, their knowledge share in their own time or if you like, in their free time, you know, it's something that's a, an interest to them. So I guess, you know, how do we actually get this embedded in the curriculum as, 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 as such, you know? And it's funny, I would, there's an organisation um, down, down in, um, down, I think it's in England somewhere, um, and they're, they're, what they're doing is they're working with schools in the northwest, actually, um, and it's about carbon and climate education. So, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, it's good that you've got computing science in schools. It's probably not, you know, exactly what the industry needs in terms of, you know, thinking about technologies like AI, IoT, blockchain, all those kind of things, you know, and that will take time. There's no doubt about it. But how do we even start to get that in the curriculum? Do we need, like, does it have to be part of the social education program or does it have to be something on its own? Where do you see that fitting in, I suppose, in, in schools and, and um, universities and colleges as well? If I was in charge, it would be embedded in um, each subject. So, you know, like as we were saying, there isn't a there isn't a workplace and there isn't a topic that doesn't have some relevance to to climate change and to um, the the other environmental crises that we face. So I think it's about, you know, if, you, if you're teaching um, geography, you obviously are going to be talking about how humans impact the environment and changes that we've made. And maybe a bit of climate change will come in there as well. But then I think we could also talk about, and here's kind of exciting developments in flood defences, and here's exciting developments in GIS that's helping us to track deforestation and, and tackle deforestation. And it's bringing in that kind of practical, here's what we're doing about it side of things to make it exciting. Because, 
you know, I often, I often say that if climate change wasn't so scary and urgent, it would be really fun to work on because it's a really interesting problem. It's a really complex, it involves humans, relationships, physics, you know, it's it's a really interesting um, mix of, of problems and challenges that we've got to work on here. And if it wasn't for the fact that we needed to take action 20 years ago, then it would be quite, you know, it would be more interesting to work on. Um, yeah. I, think, I think it's about getting that kind of sense of opportunity and excitement and different jobs. You know, we talk about, we love to talk about oh, green jobs, green jobs, and everyone's going to want them. But well, I think we need to get much more practical and much more um, real about what that actually means and start to get the kind of new new generation coming into the workforce excited about that rather than that kind of feeling that, as, as I said, I've, I've seen of people feeling like, well, it's it's too late. We, we can't do anything and, and, and I, I can't make a difference. So, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. No, and it's, it's, listen, it's, I, I suspect as well, you know, over the last few years have been incredibly tough as well for young people as well, so you know, certainly a lot on their, their plate right now. But I think, as you said, Lucy, it's about thinking about those future careers and the kind of exciting initiatives and projects that we can be involved in, you know. And I'm very lucky that, you know, over the last few years I've done a lot in this space, you know, it's been something that I've thoroughly enjoyed, you know. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, you know as you say, that's notwithstanding the challenges that are at the table, but... I think you're right. The messaging has to be a bit of both. You know, I think we need to educate on the the kind of risks and you know, but then risks and reward as well. You know, um, so you, you often you know, kind of great journeys. You know, it's not about it's not about the kind of end results, it's about the journey getting there and the work that you've engaged in as well. So I think I think it is a balance as well. Just the, moving on, something we've kind of scratched the surface somewhat, and kind of something you know, kind of more, I suppose, in my space, but I know it's something you're also quite passionate about as well, Lucy, is on the kind of technology piece. And, you know, over the last few years, you know, digital transformations kind of rocketed to the, the kind of forefront, which is which is great, and it's becoming more embedded in organisations of all shapes and sizes as well. Uh, and, you know, hopefully the kind of net zero journey kind of has a similar trajectory in the sense that organisations across the board see, you know, likes of digital, net zero has been critical to their business you know you kind of don't have a business unless you've got these but in terms of the role of technology as well what do you i mean i think we have we spoke about this as well at the cop event as well but some of the key technologies to date to meet our net zero targets do you think you know scotland is this a kind of positive kind of place to be for that or do you see other areas of the world being a bit more forward thinking on that I yeah I, I definitely think there are a lot of companies in Scotland who are doing really exciting stuff around applying technology to um, tackle environmental challenges and so a sector that springs to mind is is space and satellites and I know Edinburgh in particular is kind of has a lot of really exciting companies around that who are yeah doing really cool things that I won't confess to kind of understanding properly um, to 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 use satellite technology um to understand the the kind of on a global scale the impact that we're having and, and how to stop that so i think that's i think that's really exciting and i think scotland is a great place to be um as a tech company in general um, there's certainly a lot of um, support out there there's a great community and, and those things that kind of really matter and i know that and um, there's ambitions to become is it silicon glen <laughs> that uh, Edinburgh, like, I, think it, yeah, I think it's silicon glen but then i'm also sure there's something in shetland silicon croft as well that's going on as well so <laughs> Yeah, you better watch out. Yeah, big big ambitions um, for a small country, which I love. It's one of the reasons I like being here. Um, so yeah, I think I think Scotland, in terms of its tech sector, um, 
working on environmental issues, I think is really, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly an exciting place to be. I think there's other technologies. So I know at the at COP I spoke about um, the how excited I am and how important I think that carbon capture is. Um, I know it can be a controversial thing because people believe it will give us a license to keep on polluting. I, I don't think that's the case. And I think that we, it's kind of, the, the the best of a, a bad bunch of options to be honest um and so i think that carbon capture and storage is one of the things that i'm most excited about and there's been really great developments um around that in europe and in iceland in particular so that those are the kind of things that, that i'm watching and i would love to see scotland develop something similar yeah no i think as well there is there is talks as well from the, the pipeline from kind of grangemouth and um, actually down the road from me to st fergus as well so i think you know the sooner some of these projects accelerate the, the better as well you know because i think you know, often you know and it's just often the way the cooking seems to crumble in the uk and scotland that things can get held up you know due to legislation bureaucracy and so on and so forth and i think we get need to get a bit more agile on that front and take a kind of similar approach to some of the you know the, the kind of estonias and icelands and so on of the world as well um just on the tech piece as well you know i think it's interesting because you know I think the probably the taboo subject in technology is you know, you know often the sector will say well we're not drilling oil out the ground you know, we're not flying planes and all this kind of stuff as well but in some ways that you know does that sort of shuck the responsibility of your sector thinking well but actually what, what can you do as well you know and you know we look at you know the emissions from data centers as well um, and then you know don't get me wrong there's been a lot of good stuff going on in Scotland you know around kind of green data centers as well but. Do you still see the, the tech sector as a whole having a key role to play in driving down their own emissions as well as helping others and coming up with solutions? You know, sometimes, you know, you, know, you, need, you can only kind of get your own house in order to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not too, you know, you, have, you ever, every now and again see these headlines like sending, sending an email is the equivalent to driving uh, like 10 miles and I don't buy it. Um, I, I emails like boiling a cup of tea or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, we should all send fewer emails, but that's for another reason. Um, so, so, so I think I would be careful not to overhype the environmental impact of the tech sector, in so much as all sectors have to think about their emissions. And so, yeah, absolutely, get your own house in order because you should be because of all the things we talked about about climate change being a risk and an opportunity for businesses. So I think that tech companies should be thinking about their own environmental impact and how to reduce that um, for, for those reasons, rather than necessarily because as a tech company, they have extra large emissions or anything like that. Um, and, I, and I think the, there's a net good of tech for helping um, environmental challenges rather than a net negative. So, so yeah, I think, you know, tech, the tech sector definitely needs to think about it. But um, as I said, I'm always a bit cynical when I see those headlines about the huge impact of, of the tech sector com as compared to other, other sectors. Yeah, of course. And it's not, you know, I think as well, you know, it's not about, you know, comparing my sectors, you know, this and my sectors that as well. Because I think, you know, every sector, as you say, Lucy's got a kind of a responsibility um, to get their own house in order. And then after that, you know, start collaborating and looking at cross-sectoral responses as well. And I think that's one thing that, you know, in Scotland, that there is, it is quite positive. I think that the, the business community is quite collaborative, generally speaking, you know, um, I think it is a kind of good place to have a business. It's a good place to you know, engage with other businesses. So that that certainly gives me kind of room for optimism on that front. Just in the kind of I guess final segment of the show, this I always like to and you know actually you know you've you've definitely gave a kind of energy and an upbeat nature uh, on this morning anyway. Um, but I guess I always kind of finish with you know looking ahead and you know I know twenty forty five 
is you know a bit away. So actually, you know, always the focus of this podcast, we can see 2030 has been something that we all want to focus on and what so and what uh, so on and so forth. So I guess firstly, you know, what do you think we need to do in the immediate term? You know, what kind of needs to be happening tomorrow, yesterday, you know, whatever. Um, and then also, you know, just kind of finally as well, are you kind of optimistic about this this journey, or do you think the, the challenges are too great? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, some big questions to end on. So, yeah, in, in terms of what we need to do in the next eight years, um, we need to get a price on carbon. Um, absolutely, that that's we're currently not accounting for it, and so we're missing a huge <laughs> externality that's not be, not being accounted for. So, we need to get a price on carbon, um, and whether that is um, a, a domestic price or, or a border price, you know, we need, we need to start embedding that into um, our goods and services. Um, and then the second thing that I would like to see specifically happen in Scotland in the next eight years is uh, it's, it's a way of tackling the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis at the same time. So looking at our land and thinking about how can we um, change its use, how can we improve it, how can we make the most of it? And I don't like to look at land in from such a kind of economic perspective and a, and a utilitarian perspective. However, that does seem to be the way that we're going so as I said I'm a, I'm a pragmatist so so let's work with what we've got I think there's you know I go out into the Pentlands just south of Edinburgh and, it, and it's barren we really need to think about how to improve that land to both for people for wildlife and for tackling climate change um, and so I think that's something that the, the Scottish government is starting to think about as well and starting to do some interesting stuff on so that's what I would like to see I would love to go out into the Pentlands in 2030 and see more woodland more biodiversity more people out enjoying it peatlands restored and see that it's, it's having that kind of role in, in tackling climate change. Um, am I optimistic? I think the conversation around climate change gets broken down into um, a binary conversation far too quickly. Either we will beat it or we won't. The climate has changed. It is changing. It's going to change. And I think it's about how do we make the best of that? How do we change our systems so that we can win in terms of slowing down that rate of change, tackling some of the other environmental issues that we've had, like the biodiversity crisis, like pollution. Um, but I I don't like it when the conversation gets too, too fatalistic around that, either we will or we won't, because we will do some of it, we won't do some others. It will get worse, but it might not get as bad as it could get. You know, it's, 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 a, continu it's a continuum. And so I think that's, you know, that's how I get my optimism, because I think there's a lot that we can do to make it better there's a lot that we will do to make it better. And so let's focus on that rather than focusing on the stuff that we might not achieve. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose just to finish, we, we live to fight another day. Uh, was probably <laughs> probably the, the way to sum that up as well, Lucy. But no, it's been it's been fantastic to, to have you on, Lucy. And it's been some really interesting insights as well from the, the circular economy piece to the kind of broader piece around, you know, kind of younger people's involvement as well. Um, some really, really interesting stuff. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and uh, no doubt see you soon. So thank you very much, Lucy. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on, Mark. Always a pleasure. Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.